All the episodes you will hear on this podcast are the audio versions of the video content on the Great Light Studios YouTube channel. If you would like to watch the video version of this episode, you can find a link in the show notes. For those of you who may not know, I do rely on monthly financial supporters to continue doing everything I do through this platform. If you are blessed by the resources produced through Great Light Studios and want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people. With all that said, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So I wanted to just talk real quick about the objection or the rebuttal to a more corporate view of Ephesians 1 for uh, which, which you know, talks about this being a choice not of individuals, not of you know, it's the claim would be that it's not really rightly looking at the the us being the direct object of of God's choice, which I don't think is the case. But it, it kind of concludes in saying that this is this is God choosing a plan, or this is God choosing, you know, a a nameless, faceless group rather than God choosing what is actually the direct object, us, um, individuals. And so I, I just, I think to the nameless, faceless group um, accusation, I think that this is just simply not true. I think it's just, it's quite inaccurate in uh, my Evaluation, anyways, to say that on the Calvinist side, they have they have the foundation to say that God is choosing specific individual names and faces. And over on you know the non-Calvinist side, it's not specific names and individuals who are the elect or chosen. God isn't God isn't making a choice of specific individual faces and names that He knows. And so I think there's actually that. Within that very argument, I think what I see is once again what I always try to come back to. What I think it, I call the critical error of Calvinism. What really is my primary issue with Calvinism, which has nothing to do with you know the caricature of of me wanting to cling on the to cling on to free will or uh, you know man worship or what <laughs> whatever kind of uh, condescending. Rhetoric is often assumed on anybody who claims they don't believe in in Calvinism and have something to say about it. Like that has that has very little to nothing to do with my reasoning uh, for rejecting Calvinism. That is for like a, a clinging to or a, a desire to uphold the truth of free will is not my motivation. It is not the motivation in my arguments. And actually, the, the, I would say from as far as I can tell anyways, like the, the core argument that I have, which is this, this complaint really against how Calvinism is, I think, incredibly inconsistent and contradictory in how they handle union with Christ, that concept, how they, how they handle the in him of Ephesians 1, 4. Um, I just think there's massive inconsistencies there that's my my primary issue with Calvinism. So I'm motivated in my <laughs> rejection of Calvinism as being biblical, not by a, a you know this 
wacky desire to to worship free will as, as I think many people assume. I don't, and again, that's just a caricature. It's uh, you know really a, a straw man and has nothing, very little to nothing to do with the things that I actually talk about um, and the arguments I actually present. And I feel like the primary arguments, this one dealing with union with Christ, I, it doesn't stand or fall based on even whether or not you know libertarian free will is real or not. Um, even if, um, again, this is as far as I can tell. If I'm missing something here, you can you can tell me. But um, uh, even if it was true that God decisively causes faith, um, I don't I don't see how that would impact the objection that I'm bringing against Calvinism and how they handle the in him. Um, it could be true that God decisively causes us to believe, um, and still these arguments about Calvinism's inconsistency here, I think, would still stand. And so, yeah, that brings me um, back, I guess, to the nameless, faceless group accusation, where, again, I would say that even that, if you understand even that argument, that objection of Corporate, corporate election is, is having God choose a nameless, faceless group. I think underlying that, again, is this fundamental misunderstanding of union with Christ. And even as, as somebody like Dr. James White has said in, in, in one of his videos, that to extend God's grace outside of Christ, he says, is to you know present a fundamental misunderstanding of what union with Christ is and means. The reality is that the self-giving of the Son is such a radical act of grace that to try to extend that outside of Christ is to show a fundamental misunderstanding of not only who Christ is, but who the Father is and what union with Christ is. Which I agree with. And I think when you accuse the corporate election folks, um, who I, I, you know, I when I when I came to my views of, of Ephesians one four, I never heard anybody else give the view that I came to. I, I never heard it before. I had no idea there was such a thing called corporate election. I just I came to this view that I saw the union with Christ aspect, the in Him aspect of it, as the key, and and, and so. So I think what the nameless, faceless group accusation does, though, is, is again, it inadvertently demonstrates a, a misunderstanding, a misconception of union with Christ. And so what I mean by that is that ultimately what, what, what's underlying that accusation is that what Calvinism ultimately believes is that God did choose a, you know, name, specific names and faces prior to, to their being in connection with Christ, which comes by faith, before they were actually in Christ, God actually chose specific names and faces. And so, okay, yeah, there, there you do. You do have Calvinism being able to have, you know, in their understanding of Ephesians 1.4, it, it presents the grounds to have God choose, select a more, like a personal, personal names and faces. Okay, I'll grant that. You've got that. But here's what you don't have. You don't have God choosing individual names and faces in him. You have God choosing personal names and faces, not in Christ, but to be in Christ. If you want to say otherwise, then you'd have to say that in some sense, 
you know, you say this choice took place before the foundation of the world when God actually chose personal names and faces. Well, there's little dispute as far as I know that the actual point in time when we actually come to be in Christ connected to him happens at the point of faith. So if back here before the foundation of the world, we had not actually come to be in Christ yet, but you still have God giving the spiritual blessing of being chosen to be holy and blameless, certain personal names and faces, you know, it's yes, before the foundation of the world, but these people are entering into this world born. If you can think of a timeline here, before the foundation of the world, people are born, you know, again, not yet in Christ, not yet connected to Christ, which Calvinists will agree that connection to Christ, that is the sphere, the exclusive sphere in which union, uh, in which being chosen, that spiritual blessing of chosen happens. It's, it's we become connected to Christ in this living union. And that is when all that is Christ comes to us, which I think is, is that is right on point. And that's hitting the nail on the head. I uh, 100% agree with that. The problem, as I've talked about before, is that they then make a such a significant disconnect. They have this pre-established idea of what union with Christ is, and then they immediately kind of just disembark from it when they when they come across Ephesians 1:4 because there's some vagueness, there's some uh, uh, obscurity about what before the foundation of the world has how does that fit in there and i think what they end up doing is they they take the obscurity of before the foundation of the world and they allow that to to cause them to then kind of depart from this clearly established concept like if you go throughout the new testament you can clearly establish there's enough text there's enough mentions of it there's enough analogies of it in the engrafting of vine uh, vine and branch, marriage becoming one, all these different analogies that I think all come back to pointing to and further clarifying what the in him of Ephesians 1-4 means, we should be approaching Ephesians 1-4 with that clarity, with that being established. Here's what union with Christ is. Here's what it means. Here's how it happens. Here, here, is, here are its effects when it does happen. Here's who it happens for. And when you, when you actually look at how Reformed people even answer those questions, there's very little to no disagreement between how I would answer those questions and how they do. Union with Christ is is, is something that happens in connect, its connection to Christ. They would agree that it involves its, you know, it's this engrafting into Christ. It's marriage with Christ, becoming one with Christ, where all that is his becomes ours. This is their unpacking of what it means to be in him. They will say this happens at the point of faith. It only happens when we believe. And um, the effects are, again, that, that every spiritual blessing then and only then exclusively within this context of union with Christ, that is when every spiritual blessing actually becomes ours. And so there's no disagreement. And all these, these ideas line up almost perfectly with, with how I would articulate it. It's actually been quite surprising to me because prior to really the, the, the last couple of months, I had not spent a ton of time diving into like how re reformed people would understand union with Christ. My, my assumption was almost that they, they would probably maybe not just Maybe they didn't talk about it a whole lot. Maybe they didn't really ever spend much time focusing on it, which was definitely not the case. Or maybe when they did talk about it, they just didn't, you know, their ideas would, would obviously not line up with mine because if they line up with mine, I think it, well, it creates some significant issues in Ephesians 1-4. 
And and really, to my surprise, what I found over and over and over again uh, from everybody from Calvin to uh, to C.S. Lewis, um, uh, you know, both sides of the fence here is that there's this this isn't a highly contended thing. It's like there's this is a foundational, seemingly well agreed upon concept of what what in him, even even specifically in Ephesians one four. There's not contention really about what the in him means. Maybe maybe there is. I haven't I'm not saying I've comprehensively read everything there is, of course, but at least from what I can tell from from the different commentaries and the different uh, preaching on it and all that that I've listened to, there is this agreement about the in him referring to, you know, this connection and grafting into Christ. That only happens at faith. And so all, all that to say that I just feel like they, to me, it, it's just so clear. I don't, I don't think you can not see the inconsistency here um, unless you're just not wanting to see it because they have all these pre-established, clear ideas of union with Christ, which I think is correct. We, sh- we should have that coming into Ephesians 1.4. But again, because there's some obscurity and vagueness and, and even mystery to the before the foundation of the world, they then, in essence, completely depart, and they're willing to kind of, they're willing to contradict, they're willing to then be inconsistent with all these pre-established ideas of what union with Christ is, where before they said this connection happens in Christ, now they're saying, well, somehow, in some mysterious way, we, we've always been connected to Christ. They don't give any basis for that. They just have this one verse that is, again, obscure and, and unclear. Well, it says before the foundation of the world, so I guess in some sense we've always been connected to Christ. And they just, there's seemingly no consideration of the massive implications of a statement like that. We've always been in Christ. We've always been connected with him. And John Piper will even just really just pass over that in in a comment and just, you know, he'll say, well, and, and some... In some way, you know, it's just this this mystery. In some way, we've always been connected to Christ, and, and it had to be that way because that's the only we had to be in Christ in order for God to to give us the spiritual blessing of being chosen. So, in some mysterious way, we've just always been there. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So, in Christ, in connection with Christ, God sees us before we existed in such a way that our election hangs on our being connected. Some how with Jesus before we even exist. Uh, no no um, support for that. They don't demonstrate that with biblical evidence. Again, they just have this one verse that they, they don't, I don't think they see that they're doing it, but really it's just they take the vagueness of this verse, the obscurity of it to justify completely contradicting these pre-established rules, boundaries, limits, definitions of union with Christ. Where before it was Yes, we, we only come to being connected to Christ by faith. That's tossed out. It's like, well, somehow, because of this obscure ver- verse, we've always been connected to Christ. Um, and some, some will just even reword it to where, on the one hand, they'll say, we only get the spiritual blessing. They'll even emphasize that the spiritual blessing being chosen, we only get this in Christ, only in as much as we are connected to him. But then they'll say in other places, but... But actually, God chose us to be in Christ. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. So we are 
chosen to be in Christ, chosen individually to be in Christ, chosen individually to be in Christ. Which, as I've talked about, these are two totally separate <laughs> individual things that present completely different theological uh, implications to them. I mean, if you just think about it, if I if I tell my children, hey, I, I choose you in the house, or I chose you. If I, if I tell somebody, hey, I chose my children in the house to get candy, would they think, oh, what, what he meant is that all of you guys were standing outside and he chose, you know, he chose his children to get inside the house. Uh, maybe not the best analogy at the moment, but hopefully you get the point that Ephesians 1, 4 isn't saying God chose certain people to get into the house or to eventually be in the house. He's saying that choice and again, this isn't just me saying it. You can listen to the prominent Calvinist figures like Piper, um, even people like James White that will say this choice takes place exclusively in the context of the house of Christ. This isn't a choice to be in the house. This is a, to, and to even suggest that, I think even these Calvinists would say to even suggest that this is a, that there's a possibility of we, us getting this choice from God, while yet outside this house, I think they would say this demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of what union with Christ is, which I would say, yes, it does. To say God chose us to be in this house, chose us to be in Christ, is to extend grace, extend the grace of Christ outside of Christ. It's to say that some of the grace, some of the benefits, some of the reconciliation can be had, can be received, can be possessed before union with Christ. While Ephesians 1, 3 will say we get every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the context of connection to Christ, Calvinists are forced because they, they I think they can't let go of, oh, I'm going to get to it in a minute, this individualistic deterministic personal choosing of individuals that it's like they, they have to find a way to, to, you know, do something with the union with Christ, the in him, but maintain that uh, specific understanding of election. And I think in doing so, they end up having um, God not giving us every spiritual blessing, the blessing, which, which some will say, and I would agree with those like John MacArthur will even say, like, this is the first and primary, he'll say, this is the foundation of all the other spiritual blessing. Like, what's he saying? Well, being chosen, being elect, that is, it's not only just one of, of several other spiritual blessing, blessings, but in Calvinism, like, this is, this is it. This is the foundation. This is the most important element of our salvation and of our reconciliation, which Calvinism ultimately has God giving to the believer who is not yet in the Son. God gives this fundamental aspect of reconciliation, of being chosen, you know, Yes, before the foundation of the world, but I think maybe it's easier to think about in terms of this person is born with this, this description, this definition of, oh, you know, if, if you were able to know, you could walk up to an elect person who is, you know, rejecting Christ and just think of the worst person possible who is unregenerate, hasn't come to faith, is not in union with Christ. And you could ask them, hey, you know, it, it, again, if you knew, like, who are you? And they could tell you, with 100% accuracy and truthfulness, 
Again, if, if we had a way to know, they could say, I am God's chosen. I am, I am in Christ. You know, I, I am, again, we have to be connected to Christ to be chosen so he could identify himself as I'm, I'm connected to Christ. I'm, I'm one with him. I'm engrafted to him as a, a branches into a vine because, again, that's the only way I can be chosen. So I'm engrafted into Christ. Um, as, as he's rejecting Christ, as he's, you know, maybe he's going to go out and slaughter a bunch of bab babies afterward. If you want to really get this picture I'm trying to paint here, uh, somebody who is just in full-blown rejection uh, of light and, and truth. And Calvinism would say, well, that person is, they're connected to Christ. They're in Christ. Well, what else is in Christ? What are some of the other spiritual blessings that necessarily come along with being connected to Christ? No condemnation, Romans 8. Uh, we're new creations, 2 Corinthians, uh, I think, 5. Uh, if you just continue on in Ephesians chapter 1, redeemed, forgiven of our trespasses. These are things we get in Christ. Um, you, you can't get one. We, we don't, we don't, God doesn't like dispense his spiritual blessings, his privileges individually as if, as if salvation is something that's divided into a multitude of parts as if God, you know, he gives us this gift here. He gives us this thing here. And then Jesus is like just one. He's just one part of many. He's, he's just one of the gifts out of many. You know, we get, we're chosen here. Here's one gift God gives us. This is one part of salvation. And then we also, later on, we get Jesus as if these things can be distinct or separated from one another, as if Christ can be separated from his gifts. He cannot. All things, Christ is all things for the believer. As Colossians 2 says, we are complete in him. We cannot get one spiritual blessing without getting all the rest at the same time because they are all in him. And to have Christ is to have everything. To not have Christ is to have nothing. And so for Calvinism to suggest that we that God chose specific individual names and faces, you know, and again, this is just where there's inconsistency because on the one hand, they'll say, yes, this was God chose us to be in Christ. So here it's not a choice that takes place in connection to Christ. It's a choice that takes place separate from Christ because the blessing itself is a blessing of getting that connection. It's not a choice in that connection. To me, this is just, it's so, so simple. This isn't, this really isn't hard concepts to grasp. I think this concept of union with Christ is just, it's so foundational to all the New Testament. Unfortunately, it is incredibly neglected in my opinion, which I think when I present this argument is why so many people, when they first hear it, they're like, what? What'd you just say? Like, that makes no sense. And I, I, I at risk, I guess, of sounding arrogant, which is not what I'm trying to do. I just think that so many of these people don't understand this argument because they don't understand union with Christ. And they have, not, and I'm not saying, like, this was not, I'm not just saying you guys. It's like, I, in my own personal Christian circles, this isn't something that was hugely focused on. Like, I, you know, when's the last time you heard somebody preach a sermon on union with Christ or preach a sermon on what it means to be in him? I just, that's not something I heard a lot either. And so I'm not putting blame or like saying you're, I'm better than you or anything like that. It's just something that for whatever reason is, is not, not focused on. And I think that is why when I present this argument, this should be something that is just, I think this concept of union with Christ, people are just, we're, we should be on the same page about to where when I present this, you're like, oh yeah, like that, that is what we all know union with Christ means. And so that doesn't, I, I see at least be able to say, you see what I'm saying. 
unfortunately, so many hear this argument and they're like, well, I don't see. And Jeff Durbin, even when I first attempted to present this to Apologia Studios three or four years ago, and I was talking with Pastor Luke uh, back and forth in messages, and Pastor Luke then attempted to take this question that I brought because Luke wasn't um, didn't seem like he could really answer it. I'm not sure if he fully understood it. But he presented this on one of the Apologia radio broadcasts. And, and once he got through reading my question, which was basically like if, if being chosen is a spiritual blessing and all spiritual blessings are said to be in Christ, then how is it that we got this spiritual blessing being chosen before God, you know, before we were actually placed in Christ? That I mean, that's the essence of, of how my question was worded. And Jeff Durbin's initial reaction, he says, well, I find nothing interesting about that at all. So his question is, um, he says Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 says that every spiritual blessing, including being chosen to be holy, was given to us in Christ. So if we didn't get in Christ until after regeneration, then how can it be said that we were chosen before regeneration? That would be God choosing us outside of Christ and not in Christ. I don't see anything at all yeah. interesting in the argument at all. I don't even I don't understand what the confusion is. Maybe I'm I'm not hearing the yeah. It's it's weird, and so I don't necessarily blame him for that. Like even as I listen back through Luke reading that question, it's like well that is it is a little bit of a confusing question, I guess initially, especially if union with Christ, if if like you're not that's not something that's really like at the forefront of your mind um, when you're thinking about theology or Christianity in general. And I just think that unfortunately, although in him, that phrase in Christ and all these different analogies of marriage and engrafting into Christ being the, the vine, I think all these analogies of this oneness, this connection, this is like a foundational idea in Christianity, this idea that when we get this in him, when the in him becomes true of us, Everything, all at once, that God has becomes ours, and so I just think that there's so much that I, I hope to to um, I'm, you know, this is one of the things I'm really excited about talking about on the channel more, and and doing more of like just not leaving things like Calvinism or or whatever other theological things I disagree with, not having that be a part of the conversation, but actually just um, I'm excited to just be able to like dive into in Him and union with Christ and just kind of unpack some of these things. Like, I, what does it mean that we have this new identity, that God identifies us in a different way than he did, did before? Um, I think for me personally, this concept here has been, you know, one of the most life-changing, you know, impactful in my own, you know, walk with God. Uh, th this idea has been incredibly impactful. Um, one of my favorite things to talk about. And, and I suppose that's why when, when I present this argument and it's just quickly dismissed as unimportant unimportant or or you know I, I what I often do I get just get this idea that so many people respond to this argument without really understanding it because again I think they don't really grasp they haven't really thought of what union with Christ means what it is and so I genuinely hope none of that came off which I, I just feel like it very easily could I hope it doesn't tell me if it does as a, oh, look, I've got all this, this knowledge that other people don't have. Like, that's not, uh, that's not the case. I have nothing that other people don't have, except for whatever reason, I, I've just been more interested in this concept of union with Christ. I personally think it's very important, and, and um, I, I, I'm not trying to come across, and hopefully I'm not as, 
as as that. Like I've got this figured out and you don't. Um, I, I, this is more of like an invitation to say, I think I think there's some cool things here. I think there's some, you know, very profound and interesting things to find and discover in this concept of union with Christ with really, let's look at this in him in Ephesians 1 is repeated, what, 10 or 11 times? And then it's woven throughout all of, especially Paul's epistles. But again, I think you see it in the gospels. I think you see it in these different analogies. And this is this isn't me saying I'm better than anybody because I'm I'm understanding some of these things and you're not. That's not I'm just I guess inviting you to say like look look at this. Like come come look and see if if you think there's things here worth worth considering um, as I do. Um, if you think you look into it you think you're wrong that's or think I'm wrong. <laughs> And there's not much interesting uh, uh, things to see here. Well, that's let me know that too. But um, yeah, I, I guess I'm just trying to say that I'm not. Hopefully, don't take me as as being uh, arrogant in the things I'm saying. It's uh, and if I am sounding like that, let me know. But that's not my intention. Um, and so all all that coming back to the point of this video, this nameless, faceless group accusation. So that that's just my my. Long-winded first point to that is just to say that Calvinism, even in suggesting that as an argument, the assumption behind that is this assumption that fundamentally misunderstands union with Christ because it suggests, I think, either one of two things, that God chose specific names and faces, personally chose names and faces, which would mean that God actually and personally gave specific names and faces spiritual blessings before the foundation of the world, before they were born, before they believed, he gave the most important fundamental aspect of reconciliation to people who were not yet connected to Christ. So again, this nameless, faceless group accusation is founded upon an assumption that completely contradicts what union with Christ means and, and and what it entails and that every spiritual blessing is exclusively granted in the context of that connection. And so to even bring that argument in the first place, I think you're standing on quite shaky ground to do so. So you're either that, you're either, you're either, you know, misusing uh, union with Christ and saying that we can get a spiritual blessing uh, to be in Christ, that personal individual names are chosen to be in Christ, which is not a choice of, that's not God choosing us in him. It's God choosing us to be in him. So that's the problem that that you, you have to start out with even to make this nameless, faceless group accusation. Now, the second possibility would be if they go in the direction of saying, well, in some sense, somehow in God's mind, we've always been in Christ. Well, that's equally or maybe even more problematic, um, uh, at least on the same level, because now what you're suggesting is that, again, we've always been connected to Christ. So now you don't just have God giving one spiritual blessing to be in Christ, which is hugely problematic. Now you have God looking at people who have not yet connected to Christ, but he's he's always seeing them as being connected to Christ. Now you have God, think about the word reconciliation, what that means. The whole purpose of what Christ did on the cross, of what God accomplished was so that he was able to reconcile us to himself, to, to be one with us, to, to, to restore that, that closeness, that intimacy, that connection, that relationship. That is that's reconciliation. That's why he had to do what he had to do in Christ. 
To say that we've always been connected to Christ in God's mind is to say that what Christ did in accomplishing actual reconciliation was a bit unnecessary. It was kind of extra. It's kind of a step above what really needed to be done because think about it. Go look up what the definition of reconciliation is. And then consider, can you really say that if we've always been in Christ, somehow in God's mind, he's always seen us as in Christ. And, and that's how that's how they would kind of resolve this issue of God choosing personal names and faces um, before the foundation of the world. They'll just say, well, this happened. It wasn't a choice of God outside of Christ because we were, we were in Christ. We've always been in Christ. Tell me how we could have always been in Christ and that not be saying just another way, a synonymous way to say, we've always been reconciled to God. You, you are in every sense of the word, in every theological sense, in every, uh, uh, you know, understanding of what the gospel means and is about what reconciliation is, to say that we've always been connected to Christ is to simply say we've always been reconciled to God. And giving these personal individual names and faces either this spiritual blessing of being chosen to get into Christ or giving them this identity of having always been connected to Christ. In both cases, it is to suggest that the elect have never needed to be reconciled. How much? How, how could you get more reconciled than entering into this world in Christ? If God's always seen us as in Christ, then you were born in Christ. You were born with all the things that come along with being in Christ. Not only chosen, no condemnation, forgiven of your trespasses. You were a new creation, so the old things didn't really need to pass away because you can't be in Christ and, and not be a new creation. So either either way, this nameless, faceless group accusation is founded upon fundamental, I would say massive misunderstandings, once again, of union with Christ. And again, I think these, these colonists who are so, I think, correct and articulate, and communicating when they discuss outside of, you know, this, this whole Calvinism, Arminianism, sovereignty, election debate, when they just simply focus on the in him, look at all the verses and texts about what union with Christ is, well, then they, they, they come away with a really good, I think, accurate, uh, articulate um, understanding of union with Christ and what it means, what it entails. It's just that I, 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 my personal evaluation is that they are clinging somewhat to Ephesians 1, 4. They're bringing into it this assumption that it has to be this unconditional election version. Like that's what election has to look like. So somehow we got to make this in him. Although it's going to contradict everything we've already established about it, it's got to fit in here somehow. And so that's what brings me to the, the final part of this um, nameless, faceless group accusation, which is to say that my view, I, I can't speak for all non-Calvinists, but I just say, um, I think for many of them, uh, from what I can tell of what they believe about all these things, um, my view is not without God choosing individual personal names and faces. So let me explain how that works um, in my view. So when you think about God choosing Israel, God, you know, God chose a people, 
But what, what I think is most clearly revealed in the New Testament in, in places like Romans 2 where Paul will say like, one is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, but circumcision is, is circumcision of the heart. And, you know, in Romans 9 even, what I think is the foundational, the, the, the main argument he's trying to get across to, to these people is, hey, look, just being a physical descendant of Israel, of Abraham, doesn't automatically place you within the category of God's covenant people. What, what actually is the mystery and what Paul is, is kind of clarifying is that actually, yes, Israel is God's chosen people, but all along, in God's perspective, for you to actually be considered by God a part of that corporate group, it depends on whether or not you are walking in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. He will say those who are of faith in Galatians are children of Abraham. And again, a Jew is one who is one in inwardly, not just outwardly, like being physically attached to Abraham, even though, even though the nation of Israel is God's, you know, chosen people, chosen, I would even say, to be holy and blameless, a light to the Gentiles, a light in the nations, which, to be a blessing to all nations. That was the calling. That was the choice. That was the purpose God had promised to Abraham for his descendants. And, um, but being a, being a part of that promise, that promise was given, Paul will argue over and over, you know, in Galatians, and I would say again, very clearly in Romans, but especially in Romans 9 through 11, that these promises, the promises of God to Abraham were always intended to be given, even though God, even though Israel is God's chosen nation, they were given, they were dispensed, they were applied to specific type of people within that people, which is Believers, those who believe like Abraham did, these are the ones that are considered a true part of the covenant people of God. Um, I, I think this is something that you can take and very reasonably, I would say, necessarily apply when you see the concept of election and being chosen discussed in the New Testament um, by Paul in Romans 9 or Ephesians 1. I think these people would have assumed, and you should assume that Paul would have had in mind these prior established ideas of what, what God having a chosen people, what election looks like. Well, one, it was like an election, even the election of Israel wasn't, you know, the primary thing, at least wasn't an election to a promise to salvation. When God promised Abraham things, he didn't say, Abraham, Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what bringing you into covenant with me means. It means that you're not going to go to hell and the rest of your descendants won't go to hell and everybody else will. That had nothing to do with the promises. Um, now, maybe we can work, you know, obviously we got to have a place for what, uh, you know, eternal judgment, what that is, what that means that fits in somewhere into this. But the point I'm trying to make is that the promises God made to Abraham, he promised that those who were a part of his true covenant people by faith, those who followed in the footsteps of Abraham, those, the remnant from out of Israel, those are the true covenant people of God. Those are the ones who the promises were truly given to. Um, and that's not to say that everybody can't be a participant of, of the promises. It's just that God chose, God chose even when he chose Israel, he chose believing Israel. He chose that those who respond in faith, that it's believers out of Israel, those are the ones who make up his covenant people. And so in the same way, I think you can apply that in Ephesians 1. And so what I see is not God choosing primarily, at least firstly, specific individual personal names and faces, as in in the same way 
when God's choice of Israel didn't look like him saying, I choose this person, this person, I choose, you know, this, these select individuals out of Israel to be my chosen people. Instead, he chose a people and that people was believers in the same way. I think in Ephesians one, for this choice of God, it's God choosing a people, the church. God is choosing again. I think what's already identified in verse three, the primary aspect of this choice that we're seeing in Ephesians 1, 4 to be holy and blameless is that God is choosing what he chose before the foundation of the world. Yes, people say I don't acknowledge that. Of course I acknowledge that. This choice took place before the foundation of the world. That's not some abstract, you know, esoteric idea. It's like, yes, before the world was created, is, is the, that's the point in time when this choice was made. But what was that choice? Was it a choice that Harry and Bob and Tom and Phil would be faithful in Christ Jesus or that they would come eventually to be in Christ Jesus? No. God, what did he choose? He chose us in him. Verse three, the faithful in Christ Jesus. God's choice was the same as his choice of Israel. God chose the faithful in Israel. God chose those with faith in Israel to be his chosen people. Those are the, that's the remnant out of Israel who is actually a part of his covenant people. And so in Ephesians 1, 4, I think he's simply saying God chose the faithful, whether Jew or Gentile. God chose believing Jew and Gentile in Christ. God, God chose a people. He chose a, 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 a category. The us is a, a, I mean, the us is even corporate in, in the language. It's, there's, you know, it's plural. It's not God. He didn't say um, before the foundation of the world, God chose me and you, but it's, it, there's an us to it. And I think, again, the us is, is we're just saying that God chose a people and we can know that that people is the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, how does this whole nameless, faceless group uh, thing fit into here. So God chose a people, but in the same way as it was with Israel, that it was those of faith who are counted as children um, of Abraham, Galatians. So in the same sense, God chose those of faith who are counted as children of Abraham. So here's probably the most clear way I could see it, where I hope you can see why this, in many senses, seems to be the only option. Because Calvinism has the name, personal names and faces being chosen to be in Christ. I say that what gets you this blessing, this privilege of being personally known, personally chosen by God, is that you are in Christ. So we both, both sides have personal names and faces being chosen. It's just that, in my view, the personal names and faces are being chosen in as much as they are in this connection with Christ. Are you connected with Christ? Well, then God personally, individually knows your, your name and your face. There's even passages in Galatians where Paul will talk about how, you know, uh, to the Galatians, they'll say like, how can you, you know, before you didn't know God, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, you know, and then he'll go on with how they're reverting to the law. But the point of that is that Paul is seemingly at least suggesting that, hey, look, there's there's this point in time where before God didn't know you in this intimate, connected sense, where now that you're in Christ, you, you've come to be known by him, where before you were not. This is very similar to 1 Peter, where, where he'll, he'll talk about how, you know, the believers, we are a chosen 
race. We're a, we're a chosen people, a holy nation. And he'll then say, like, once you were not a people, once you were not a cho- chosen people is the, I think, obvious implications of what he's saying there. There was a time when you were not a chosen people and now you are a chosen people. So, I mean, when you just even think about the the, the idea that there was a time when the G- Gentiles were not the elect. All throughout the Old Testament history, who was the elect? Well, it was it was Israel, right? Nobody else was elect but Israel. So how does that make sense in a Calvinistic framework that this election wasn't something that was existing throughout all eternity? Um, it was, you know, this election of the Gentiles was something that came about later. It's like the realization of, of you know, that happens in the book of Acts is the apostles uh, are realizing, hey, God has also chosen the Gentiles. He's granted repentance to them as well. And so there's a sense in which you, you, you can't even see this election as like this set in stone fixed um, thing necessarily. And so all that to say that, you know, there are personal names and faces chosen in my view. It's just that getting that privilege, getting that benefit of being personally known by God in this intimate, reconciled way, it's something that I just don't think you can extend outside of Christ. I think this is something that, yes, God chooses personal individual names, but it happens only in the context of union with Christ. And that is why I do not think you can read Ephesians 1, 4 to say God chose personal individual names to be in Christ, because that's an election outside of Christ. I also don't think you can say God chose perfect, uh, God chose individual personal names um, in Christ, but we've just always been in Christ. That creates massive issues as well. What I think makes perfect sense is to say God chose the, the people that he would make holy and blameless. He had a category of people in mind, us, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul was talking to people who we know we are all faithful in Christ Jesus. And, and he knew in this revelation that before the foundation of the world, I know what, what God chose is that those who believe upon Christ, the believers in Christ Jesus, those who walk in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham, it is these who are counted as, you know, the, these are the faithful in Christ Jesus. This is the, the category of people, uh, the people that God has chosen. Um, again, which I think you can find you can find grounding for, you can see that pattern in God's choice of, of Israel. And so I don't think, again, you can't extend that blessing of God, that grace to being something that is received in any sense, apart from outside of that, that connection. You can't, can't get chosen unless you're connected. You can't get connected unless you have faith. And you can't be connected at the same time that you're, you're unreconciled. If you're connected, that is... <laughs> That is reconciliation. It's the two separated, the gap being bridged, the two being made one. Um, and so, yes, in my view, there are individual personal names and faces. I just think, I think it is inappropriate, uh, I guess, to use that word. I think that fits. I think it's, I think it's um, a misunderstanding of union with Christ. I think it's a misconception of it of what it is, how it works, to suggest that our individual personal names and faces can be chosen. We can get that benefit from God while we are not yet connected to Christ. 
And this is where I've talked about some, and I don't just say this to be snarky or to to have like a, a you know a a good condescending one-liner to throw back at Calvinists. But when Calvinists, you know, have this argument that that non-Calvinism is man-centered, I'll just say, well, I I I honestly, for these reasons I'm describing, believe Calvinism is at its core not. Uh, uh, has, has a, a flawed Christology making it quite man-centered. So in, in the view I'm you know, expressing here, it's God choosing us. Not, you know, Calvinists will say, well, it's not because of anything in us, but, but I don't know that you can really say that because there's, there's some reason, there's some reason in God's sovereign, eternal plan and, and, and you know, knowledge of all things, there's some reason that he picked, you know, you or, or me and not the other person. There's a reason. It, it, it's, it's unconditional, you know, as far as we know, but he, he created you. He must have. There, there, what other explanation is there but that he created you in some certain way where his choosing of you would be more to, to uh, you know, magnify his glory. So there is whether, you know, you can say, yeah, well, it wasn't for me. Well, yeah, it doesn't matter. He still made you better than other people. Um, he, he, he might not have been anything you did, but this, the fact still remains, even though it was because of, of what God did and the way he created you, he created you better than other people. Um, he, he picked you as his favorite. Uh, he, he picked you not, not because of a connection and union with Christ, not because he saw uh, you in Christ, he picked you because of something about you, whether it's him, the one who, who determined these things about you or not, is, is somewhat irrelevant because the fact remains these things are still true about you, whether he is the one who caused them or not. It's still you. Uh, uh, that's the way he made you. He made you better than other people. He made you more selectable, more uh, advantageous to his ultimate goals and plans for the universe Something about the way he made you made you a better choice than the next person. So, you know, and and also you have this, again, this choice of you, of individuals. Like Calvinists can't let go of, it had to be me. I was picked. Um, and and when you kind of try to suggest this idea that, well, I think I think Jesus fits in there in a significant way. I, I, I think there is something to Peter's mention of Jesus, you know, being the elect, the chosen cornerstone. And, and yeah, I think that can be quickly dismissed uh, because obviously Ephesians 1.4, it's us being chosen. It's not Christ. That's that's not the point. But I think underlying all that is this in him, right? Well, what, why are we chosen? Why are we chosen? Are we chosen independently from our connection with Christ? Well, even Calvinists will say we're not. Even Calvinists will say that's impossible. So I think, but they do inadvertently suggest that. Again, depending on which of these ways we've already talked about they go, they suggest that this choice is something we get, I get, God picked me. Not, not because he saw me in Christ, he picked me to get into Christ. So just I, I just say this to say that when Calvinist, you know, I see this a lot in the comments, but I see it everywhere where this discussion is being had, this accusation of, oh, non-Calvinist, you're just man-centered, you just love free will, and, and you're just not properly acknowledging the depths of our sin and things like this. Well, I just say, I think there's some things here you haven't considered. I genuinely do. 
because you you have a system that says you were made to be more, again, advantageous to God's ultimate plans than the next guy. So I just think, again, it's like this nameless, faceless group. Well, don't, it's just, it's so erroneous to assume that it's the Calvinist who has the ability to have God choosing personal names and faces. That's just not the case. I just believe that that personal names and faces being chosen is a privilege that cannot happen, cannot be true for anybody but those who are in Christ. And so I think it's the fact that God sees me in Christ. It's when that happens, that's when God can look at me personally, individually, and say, you know, reconcile. There's now that gap has been bridged because I'm in Christ, and now I can be granted that spiritual privilege of being chosen to be holy and blameless. To say that that can be can be extended or given outside of that context, again, to suggest a great misunderstanding, I, I think, of union with Christ. And so this is not a matter of nameless faces or, or personal names and faces being chosen over here. Calvinism can do that, and I can't. The non-Calvinist can't. It's just a matter of where do you put that personal choice. Yes, there is a personalness and individuality to God's choice, but I just think we have to, we have to put that blessing in its right place, that place being, being in Christ. Calvinism doesn't, I don't, I don't see them doing that, uh, not even close to doing it consistently. And so then from that, you also have this accusation that, you know, non-Calvinism is man-centered and Calvinism just, just glorifies God and just puts man down in his proper place. Well, I mean, I think there's more to the story. I genuinely do. And I would, I would argue all day not not out of a motivation to just you know have a, have a good response or, or snarky response to Calvinists, but I genuinely believe that it is the Calvinistic system that is presenting a much more man-centered perspective here. I think there really is some key aspects of Christology kind of at stake here, where do you see God's privileges and blessings as things that can be distributed? outside of a union and oneness with Christ, that would be to make Christ something less than all and all for us. It, it would make him simply one step in this process of salvation where we where it's as if God gives many different things. Yet we get this personal individual choice of our personal name and face. This this is one blessing we get which then later on allows us to, you know, subsequently get Christ. So in this idea, you have God giving like this variety of things. When I think God has one thing to give, which is his son, and in his son, he puts all things. To him who has the son has life. If you do not have the son, you do not have life. So having Christ in that, you have everything else. And not having him means you have Nothing else. That's not to say that God doesn't show mercy and kindness or or love to to those outside of Christ. It, it, I, I think all these things when I talk about spiritual blessings, I'm talking about the, these like aspects of reconciliation, which has been made only available in Christ, where there's this this separation uh, again, if you will, and it it is within the context of Christ that all the spiritual blessings, like this uh, reconciliation. Um, and, and different elements related to that, all the privileges, I guess, that come along with this restored relationship with God. It's only in Christ that we can get those blessings. That's not to say that there's 
absolutely you know, no blessing at all that God ever gives to anybody that is not, you know, identified as being in Christ. This is maybe a bit of another conversation, but I just think this is something that's kind of come to mind that I wanted to clarify. Of course, there are certain blessings and and grace and mercy, kindness that God gives. It's just that there's not... Um, there's not like a possession or or a being given of these aspects of reconciliation unless there is somehow this this connection to Christ. I think because again, Christ is Christ is the the vine, we are the branches. And like he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I would say it's accurate to say, apart from me, you have nothing. Again, nothing in terms of these elements, these aspects of of reconciliation. And so it's only in that connection we can have that. It's only in that connection that we can have our personal name and our personal face both chosen by God and known by God. Because outside of that connection to Christ, you cannot have that. That That is a fundamental aspect of re- reconciliation that just simply would not make sense to say that can be given or apprehended by somebody who has not become actually connected to Christ. Thank you for listening to the Great Light Studios podcast. To find more information and resources or to watch our films, you can find links in the show notes of this episode to our Facebook, YouTube, and other social media accounts. If you are blessed by the resources produced through Great Light Studios and want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people.